0: We welcome you to this video Bible class brought to you by the Laurel Heights Church of Christ in McAllen, Texas. I'm Warren Berkeley, and the location of our study, Acts chapter 25. Soon, we will complete the study of Acts. I'll take us to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. More about that in a couple of weeks. This video is about Acts chapter 15, and I'm going to begin with four fast facts. One, as we begin chapter 25, remember that Paul had been left in prison in Caesarea after the hearing before the governor Felix. Some translations use the term governor or procurator. This was an agent of the Roman Empire, assigned primarily to keep peace and to judge criminal cases. Cases from Jerusalem were referred to Caesarea, Luke says Paul remained in prison in Caesarea for two years until the new governor took office. And that brings us to Festus. He makes a trip to Jerusalem before taking over his duties in Caesarea. This was customary for a new Roman official to visit the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. He was approached by Jewish leaders who were seeking Paul's death. Verse 3 clearly identifies that purpose. Festus asked these men to accompany him back to Caesarea, and that brings us now to Acts 25. I'm going to read the first five verses. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning to ambush and kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So at this point, there is no doubt in our minds as we read the history given by Luke that the Jews really have no case against the Apostle Paul. What they do have is sheer, immature, hatred, and wrath that now has become homicidal. They reject Jesus Christ. They resent Paul going to the Gentiles and telling them they can be God's children. Paul has certainly been critical of the attitude in the agenda of Jewish leaders in their general departure from God, and a key sticking point, especially for Sadducees, is Paul is preaching the resurrection of Christ, and the final resurrection of the dead. So, it is this simple. They want Paul dead. Yet the Romans are the higher authority. If an ambush doesn't work, they will seek Paul's death from the Romans. That brings us now to Festus, the new governor, is in Jerusalem for a visit, and the leading men among the Jews... Approach Festus about the case of Paul. Festus said, if I may paraphrase, gather up your men and your evidence and go with me to Caesarea. Not much is known about Festus. He died about two years after this. He seems to have been just a little more conciliatory than Felix. I want to take us now to Acts 25, 6 through 12 Acts 25 6 through 12 After he stayed a- among them not more than 8 or 10 days he went down to Caesarea and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought when he had arrived the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not Prove. Paul argued in his defense Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. I would recommend you mark verse 7 here in Acts 25. That's the key verse in this context, and I tried to emphasize that in my reading. I'm talking especially about that final phrase, they could not prove. It has been clear to us all along. And it is now even clearer, there are charges against Paul from his enemies, but there's no evidence. There's no proof. We talked about this a little in the last class. In the law of Moses, in Roman law, in Jewish law, in American law, charges are empty and should take a court nowhere until supported by evidence. There was never any evidence against the Apostle Paul that he violated Old Testament law or Roman law or Jewish civil law that was expanded beyond Moses. Paul, by preaching the gospel, irritated the Jewish leaders who held power, especially when he took the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul argues his case briefly and reasonably, as reported by Luke in this section. He said, I have not violated the law of the Jews or the laws of Caesar. Festus replied, you want to go to Jerusalem? This might today be called a change of venue. However, Festus says, before me in Jerusalem, so no change in the controlling authority, and Jerusalem, we know, would be hostile territory for Paul. This is where Paul again asserts his right as a Roman citizen. In these words... I appeal to Caesar. Festus confers with his counsel, then says, To Caesar you have appealed? To Caesar you shall go. Isn't it clear? Paul saw clearly that he could hope for justice and for acquittal only from the Romans, not from the Jews. Next, an unexpected turn of events when two people show up and want to see what this is all about, King Agrippa and Bernice. I'm in Acts twenty-five thirteen through 27. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers, Face to face, and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So, when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evil as I had supposed. Rather, They had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody, For the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Now, this might be a good time to pause and explain something about the government in Judea and these people. It is complicated. Felix was the Roman procurator or governor of Judea appointed by the Roman emperor, his office in Caesarea. Festus was his successor. King Agrippa is full title. King Herod Agrippa II, the son of Herod Agrippa I, Acts chapter 12, his uncle killed John the Baptist. Bernice was his sister, but common knowledge in history is their relationship made them guilty of incest. He is the king over the Jews, but of course not sovereign since every Jewish official served under Roman supervision. This Herod never really reigned over the whole of Judea, just in parts up around Galilee, and he used this title king. So King Agrippa II, one of the Herods, shows up, and whatever he asks, he gets. So there is this unscheduled meeting with Paul that really doesn't pertain to any legal stipulation. It's a matter of interest. Felix speaks to King Agrippa about Paul. Observe, I'm sorry, not Felix, Festus. Festus confesses that he's at a loss about how to sort this out. He has charges without evidence. As the conversation continues between Festus and Agrippa, notice these phrases. In verse 20, Festus says he's at a loss. In verse 25, I have found nothing deserving death. In verse 26, I have nothing definite to write. So he's at a loss how to word any kind of indictment. All through this, there is this thread of injustice that the Jews want to kill Paul, but they have no evidence for a just execution. That's Acts 25. The actual meeting between Paul and Agrippa comes in chapter 26. One more thing about Festus' conversation with Agrippa. There is an exaggeration you may have noticed in verse 24. The whole Jewish people. That's not right. You remember how many obeyed the gospel in Acts chapter 2? About 3,000. And that number went up in the early chapters. The tendency to exaggerate has always been typical of some politicians. Our takeaways, I want to go back to verse 3 where Luke tells us what the Jews' intention was. They were planning an ambush to kill him. Do not think of these Jews as men who were sacredly observing the law of Moses, devoted to God, through the document that they had in their dispensation, the Law of Moses. The Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament told the Jews about the Messiah, identified him in specific prophecies. And that Old Testament and those prophecies were a schoolmaster to lead the Jews to accept Jesus as the Christ. The fact that these men were Jews and the Jewish nation was a creation of God, does not mean these men were in any way carrying out the law of God in the Old Testament or tracking what the prophets said. These men, like those who crucified Christ, were motivated by jealousy, envy, resentment, and their tactics or methods were of the devil to preserve the religious empire and power they had acquired. Nothing in the Old Testament would lead anyone to kill Paul or kill anyone on the basis of any religious conflict. These were Jewish radicals. They were terrorists against any Jew who confessed Jesus and the resurrection. From that point of truth, we can add that even if someone claims to be a Christian, or they say they are following the teachings of the New Testament, if there is an intent to ambush and kill, there is nothing in the New Testament instructing Christians to kill their enemies. In fact, Jesus said, here's how you treat your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for them. Now, I'm making that point not because I think any of you are confused about this. I'm making the point to stress that we need to make it clear to people in our culture and climate today. No matter what people claim, God hasn't called anyone today to ambush and kill people we don't agree with. And when people say, well, there were Christians in history who killed in the name of Christ— We need to respond by saying, no, not in the name of Christ. They didn't do that. They may have said that, but we can open up the New Testament and show Christ never authorized violence or terrorism. He authorized self-defense and government, but we love our enemies, shun violence, and try to teach people the gospel. What seems so simple to us may, in our present time, need to be re-articulated and restated. Number 2 I want to revisit verse 8 where Paul made this statement before Festus neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Well of course that amounts to a plea of not guilty. Paul was accused with regard to three things. 1 he violated the law of the Jews 2 He took an unclean Gentile into the temple, and three, he had violated the laws of the Romans, but there was no evidence of any of that, and Paul here asserts his innocence. I wanted to make this point. The gospel can be preached without upsetting every convention of man. We have seen Paul was extremely careful not to walk all over the customs and culture of the Jews. He went out of his way to accommodate without compromise. So that at this point, there was no evidence he was guilty of doing anything wrong. The lesson for us is, don't be offensive unless there is a requirement of truth. Even then, speak the truth in love. Certainly, the truth of the gospel offends and convicts hardened sinners. We cannot compromise the message. We cannot sin. But Paul's example makes it clear. If truth doesn't require it, we don't have to walk all over people and make fun of their customs and their legitimate laws. If we set out to be offensive, we have started with the wrong intention, and people will turn us off. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Paul never hesitated to preach Christ, to preach Jesus, crucified and raised from the dead. In fact, you notice in verse 19, Festus is telling Agrippa that Paul preached that Jesus died but was now alive. So there was no uh, accommodation for the sake of the crowd or for his own safety. Yet Paul did follow some of the Jewish customs that did not involve any sin. We saw that earlier. And he did not violate Roman law. He did not set out To be offensive, he set out to preach the gospel. Of the charges made against him, zero guilt. We are struck by a contrast here. Agrippa and Bernice enter the hall with great pomp and ceremony. Paul, the apostle of Christ, is in chains. It is a typical reversal that is superficial. The real man who was faithful to God, is the despised prisoner. Their ceremony and theater and attention is directed to the sinful, arrogant, and the carnal. God looks on the heart, and he knows who his people are. And then, I wanted to address this part of the story. Did Paul fail to trust God? Let's deal with that. Some commentators have criticized Paul, claiming instead of appealing to Caesar, he should have just been silent like Jesus. Well, let's tackle that. First, while there are many parallels between Christ's trials and Paul's, there's one distinct difference. Christ's trials ended in his death, which was a divine provision of atonement for the lost. Paul's trials end in his death, but not a death with the atonement provision. Further, do you remember back in Acts 23, 11, the Lord spoke to Paul and told him he would testify in Rome. But let's dig a little deeper. I raise this question. Does trusting God mean we take no measures of safety and responsibility here on earth? No. An example. When Nehemiah came back to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem, God was with him, and God reassured him in the work, but there was work on earth to do. Nehemiah took responsibility, did the work, and engaged in measures to protect the people. It says, When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But, Nehemiah 4, 7-9, we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. They took responsibility, continued the work, but they posted a guard. They took responsibility for their safety. Paul depended on God while doing everything he could do legally and physically to be safe and to be a part of God's plan moving forward. That's Acts chapter 25. Next will be Acts chapter 26, and please look forward to our study of 1 John that will begin February 21. Thank you for listening.